0: All of us have trouble sometimes making up our minds. It can be often about insignificant things, standing in a shop trying to decide between two different tops that you like, or it can be about slightly more significant things, which insurance policy we're going to sign up to? What course we're going to study? Maybe even more significant things. Should I marry this particular person? Should I take that job instead of that one? Should I move to that new place and take that new opportunity? Often, making up your mind means turning away from other options. When you choose one thing, very often you have to let other things go. And this morning we come to a scripture passage that calls us to make up our minds. And it tells us when it comes to walking in the light, making up our minds certainly involves letting other things go. 1 John is a book about walking in the light. And Steve has led us through the first sections of it over the last four weeks. We've seen in those sections, John setting out things Christians are to believe, and things Christians are to do. Christians are to believe in the reality of sin, and our need for forgiveness. We're to believe Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Christians are to do certain things. Christianity is not like a form we sign or a petition. I'm for Jesus. And then we forget about it. No, John has told us, as well as being a set of beliefs, Christianity is a lifestyle. Christians keep God's commands. We obey him. That's what we've been confronted with in the first chapter and a half of this book. And now John pauses and he says to us, I have given you now a sketch or an outline of what is involved in Christianity. And so now, make up your mind. Are you committed to this? Are you in or not? And John goes about this in two ways. First he says, realize what you have in Christ. Let's be clear on the privileges and the blessings of the Christian life. And then John says, don't trade all that for short-term substitutes. We're going to read 1 John chapter 2 verses 12 to 17. If you haven't found it, it's on page 1225 in the Church Bibles and in the large print 1899 first John two verse twelve. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young man, because you are strong and the Word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is God's Word. Sometimes when you and I get together as Christians, we talk as if our faith is a bit of a ball and chain to us. If an outsider was listening to us sometimes, they might get the impression it's a bit of a drag being a Christian. Kind of a handicap. It's hard. Everybody's against us. People don't respect us. Society looks down on us. Sometimes we talk as if following Christ is grim. A kind of grey existence we're not too thrilled about. But hey, that's the only way to heaven, so we've got to do it. When you and I are like that, the New Testament replies by saying, yes, the Christian life is hard. It's not a breeze to follow Christ. But it's also glorious and blessed and privileged beyond any other kind of life. And here in our passage, as John calls us to make up our minds, he starts by reminding us of the glory and the blessing and the privilege of the Christian life. In verses 12 to 14, he says, Realize what you have in Christ. But before we look at what John says in these verses, we have to figure out who he's saying all this to. You'll notice he mentions, Dear children and then fathers, and then young men. So is he talking about three stages of life, but he's just got them in the wrong order here? I don't think so. If you look back a few verses to chapter 2, verse 1, John calls his readers, my dear children. The wording is the same as here in verse 12. And so dear children is John's way of referring to the whole group. The whole fellowship of believers. It shows how much affection he has for these people. And that means fathers and young men are groups within the fellowship. They're subsets of the dear children. So does that mean John has nothing to say to mothers and young women? I don't think that's the point. If dear children is a way of speaking to the whole church, then fathers is a way of speaking to the more senior members of the church. That could be senior in the sense of age or in terms of Christian experience and maturity. And then young men refers to those who have less years or less experience and maturity in the church. So what about the ladies? Well, there was a time not too many years ago, when men often meant men and women. And it still pops up in some of the songs we sing. The ears of all men need to hear of the Lamb who is crucified, we sing. And when we sing that, we don't wonder, well, don't the women need to hear as well? We understand as we sing, it means men and women. The same thing is going on here in our passage. Fathers means all who are more senior. And young man means all who are less senior. What does John say to these people? Well, first he reminds all of them, in Christ, they have forgiveness. Verse 12, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Earlier, John said, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now, he says, think what that means. Let that sink in. If you're trusting in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. The biggest problem you will ever face has already been solved. It's been dealt with. On judgment day, you will not be condemned. Your debt has been paid. Your slate has been wiped clean. God has no grievance against you. Maybe some of us have got so used to God's forgiveness, we've forgotten the blessing it is. In the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the hero of the story, starts with a heavy burden on his back. He's desperate to get rid of it in the first part of the book. He trudges around with this thing bending him over. And when he finally does get rid of the burden at the cross, he starts singing and dancing, leaping for joy. And he's got clean clothes on too. That's a picture of God's forgiveness. Not just the fact of forgiveness. It helps us understand the experience and the delight of forgiveness. In Psalm 32, David says, Blessed, or it could be translated, happy. Happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Have you forgotten the time you moved from desperation to peace? Maybe even euphoria because your sins were forgiven. Have you forgotten what it was like to realize God has nothing against me? My account is clear. There's no hell ahead for me. I'm going to heaven. John says, if you have forgotten, remember. In Christ, you have eternal forgiveness. Could anything be more valuable than that? John goes on in verse 13. I am writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. Maybe the older we get, older in years or older in the faith, the older we get, the more likely we are to feel a bit jaded. We find that things seem to change so quickly. We grew up listening to records. And we were just getting used to tapes when CDs came along. And now all you need is a phone. And that's just music. It seems like everything's changing, everybody's in a rush. The speed of change can make us more and more dizzy. And in the face of this constant change, maybe it feels like the only options we have are either scramble desperately to keep up or just give up? Opt out of it all. What does John say to us when we feel that way? He says, you know Him who is from the beginning. In other words, you know the eternal, unchanging God. Yes, maybe everything else is changing. But you are connected to the one who never changes. Maybe tomorrow your phone will be out of date. Maybe your clothes are already out of date. But God is the same today as he was yesterday. And he'll be the same tomorrow. Always faithful. Always good. Always strong. You don't have to opt out of life. You can face it with the unchanging God. We don't have to scramble to keep up in life. We know the one who holds time in his hands. What we have in him is always relevant. Internet sensations tend to last about two weeks. Celebrities have a few years in the limelight. But God and his people will last forever. In Christ, we have fellowship with the unchanging God. And this truth is not just for senior members of the church. In verse 14, John says to the whole church, Dear children, you know the Father. You're not just acquainted with God, you're family to God. Through faith in Christ, you have been adopted as sons and daughters. God is your Father. In Romans, Paul spells out what that means for us. He says, we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Everything He has is ours. Could anything be more reassuring than that? Could anything give us more stability in our lives than that? One of our songs says, I do not know what lies ahead. The way I cannot see. But I know who holds the future. And he'll guide me with his hand. I do not know how many days of life are mine to spend but one who knows and cares for me will keep me to the end. I do not know the course ahead. What joys and griefs are there? But one is near who fully knows. I'll trust his loving care. In Christ we have forgiveness and fellowship with the unchanging God. And we have victory over the evil one. Look down to the end of verse 14. I write to you, young man, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. The evil one is referring to the devil. John addresses these words to young men. There are battles at every single stage of our lives. But maybe those battles seem fiercer when we are young in years or younger in the faith. Our bodies are stronger and our longings are stronger. Maybe as young Christians our enthusiasm is stronger. And so the temptations we face are also stronger. John singles out this section of the church. Those who feel the evil ones attacks most strongly. And he says, you have overcome the evil one. Yes, the devil is a liar and a murderer. Yes, it's a fierce battle living for God. But as you fight, remember this. The devil is beaten. Jesus beat him by the cross. Our reading earlier said, Jesus triumphed over every power by the cross. The devil rages today, but his power is broken. If we belong to Christ, then even as we face temptation, we are strong. Not strong with our own strength. We have the strength of the risen Christ in us. If we resist the devil... And we'd better resist him, not invite him into our life. But if we resist him, he will flee from us. Sometimes we give up the fight before it's even started. Temptation comes and we just roll over and give in. But the New Testament says you are involved in a proper fight. Resisting the devil is a proper struggle. But if you will enter into the struggle, God has given you the strength to win. Against your rotten temper, or your rampaging lust, or your bitter tongue, whatever it is. And notice, we're not automatically strong. We are strong as the Word of God lives in us. In Ephesians, Paul says the Word of God is our sword against the evil one. As we pay attention to God's word and make it the authority in our lives and put it into action in our lives, then we are strong. That doesn't mean our battles magically disappear. It means, though, we can win our battles. And that makes all the difference in the world. To fight knowing you really can win. John Calvin says, Our condition is very different from those who fight under other man's banners. To them, war is doubtful and the issue uncertain. But we are conquerors before we encounter the enemy. For our head, Christ, has overcome the whole world once for all for us. Every year... The Italian rugby team plays in the Six Nations. And before the tournament even starts every year, they know they're going to come last. Now they can fight, and they do, but they aren't going to win. And they must know that before they start. And we can admire people who know they're going to lose and who fight anyway. There is something admirable admirable about that. But you and I can also thank God that is not our situation. We fight knowing we can win. In fact, if we're honest, if you and I lose in the face of temptation, it's because we didn't really want to win. Many of us know what that's like. We know what it's like to fight Half heartedly against the evil one because deep down we want what he's offering us. We want to lose in the fight against temptation. And that leads us into verses 15 to 17. But before we go to those verses, let's make sure we've got John's point here in verses 12 to 14. In Christ, we are blessed beyond measure. We have priceless blessings. No experience can beat the experience of sins forgiven. No security can beat the security of knowing God. No victory can beat the victory Christ won at the cross. John says just pause, realize what you have. It's priceless. There is nothing greater and nothing higher than what we have in Christ. And now John says, keep that high privilege in mind and don't trade all that for short-term substitutes. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. Before Megan and I were married, she flew from the U.S. to visit me in Northern Ireland. And on Sunday, we went to my home church in Northern Ireland, and the pastor invited Megan to the front. He did a bit of an interview with her, and one of his questions was, Megan, tell me what it was like when you were in the world. What an odd question. I could tell Megan was thinking, Am I not still in the world? When did I leave it? I knew Ireland was far away. I didn't know it was another planet. What was that pastor talking about? Well, before we try to answer that, here's something else. When I was a teenager, my friend's dad thought at one point I was a bit too rebellious. And he would occasionally say to me, very sternly, you're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. What did he mean? What did my pastor mean? Was his question to Megan. Well, they were picking up, in their own way, on John's way of talking. Do not love the world. Meaning, do not love this world system that defies God. Don't side with the majority of people in this world who give God the finger. They ignore God's Christ and God's Word. They set themselves in the place of God. Or something else in the place of God. John says, don't go along with the mindset of this world. The mindset that says, forget eternity. Let's just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You only live once. So grab all you can. Or party all you can. Or look after yourself all you can. And who cares what might come after this life? That's what John has in mind when he talks about the world here. He's not saying created things are bad. Because ultimately this is God's world. And there's lots of good to be enjoyed in it. For all of its darkness, God has filled it still with good gifts for us. So this is not a call for us to hate the material world or withdraw from it. This is a call not to side with this world in its defiance of God. That's what John means when he says, don't love the world. Now in other places, the New Testament tells us to love the world. Because God loves it. John's Gospel tells us, for God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So there is a sense in which we are to love the world. We want to see it reclaimed for God. We want to see men and women saved from darkness and sin. But here, the same person who wrote John's Gospel, John is not talking about that saving kind of love for the world. He's talking about the joining the world's team kind of love. So this is not a call to avoid evangelism. It's not a call to hate nature or music or food or relationships. But this is a call not to give this world our loyalty. Not to set our heart on what this world offers us. And John describes what the world offers us in three ways in verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We could explain that as what you crave, what you see, and what you have. John says, do not crave what this world offers you. The book of Revelation pictures this world as a prostitute called Babylon. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. She's glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. And she holds out a golden cup. She is wildly attractive. Almost irresistible as John looks at her because he wrote Revelation. The wine in her cup, John says, is intoxicating. And that vision at the end of the Bible connects back to the very start, to the Garden of Eden. The serpent in Eden drew Eve's attention to the one tree God had forbidden. Eve looked at it and she saw that the fruit of that tree was pleasing to the eye. Very attractive, almost irresistible. And she ate it. Gave some to her husband. This world not only looks good, it also tells us that what we see is all there is to see. This world calls us to ignore spiritual realities. It calls us to base our decisions and our priorities only on what we can see and touch. And this world tells us to find our identity in what we have. It might be your looks. Find your identity in how good you look. It might be your stuff, or your bank account, or your qualifications. It might be your connections. Find your identity in the people whose numbers you have in your phone. How many of them there are, and how impressive those people are. And they know you. might be the number of followers or friends you have online. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Together, they make up an unholy trinity. Together, they are what this world calls us to love and serve and worship. And John says in verse 15, if that's what you love, then love for the Father is not in you. We often hear people saying, you can have it all if you want. Now that statement usually comes from a top athlete, maybe, or a top business person, claiming you can have a career at the very top of your profession and You can have a thriving family life. You can have it all. And maybe it is possible to have it all in that sense. Maybe some people can do that. But John says you can't have it all when it comes to loving God and loving this world that defies God. Multitasking is another popular idea. Personally, I think it's a myth. People don't really multitask. They just switch really quickly between tasks. But let's say, just for a moment, it is possible to multitask in certain ways. Maybe ordering your Tesco delivery online while you're on the phone to the insurance company. Maybe we can multitask like that. But John says, you can't multitask when it comes to loving God and also loving this world that defies God. If you and I set our affection on this world, how can we also have true affection for God? And again, of course... There are good things in this world. Good gifts from God and they are to be enjoyed with thanks to God. But those things must never take the place of God. Not everything people live for is bad in itself. The things we crave and the things we have can be good things. But when we make those things into God things, when they begin to take first place for us, then we are joining this world in its defiance of the living God. Our hearts are not big enough to worship two things. That's what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. This is something we cannot multitask. We cannot be captivated by this world and captivated by God at the same time. We have to choose. We have to make up our mind. But maybe you hear that and you think, I'm not so sure. I think I can manage it. I'm here in church. I enjoy it. I like the songs. I feel a spiritual connection usually. Sometimes I take something helpful away with me. But it doesn't interfere too much with the rest of my life. I think I am having it all. But don't you see, trying to give God a little space in your life, that's already a decision to live for something else. He's either God of all your life or he's not God at all. True worship of God is exclusive worship. We can live for him or we can live for those other things. What we cannot do is live for both. And whatever we might say, Our daily decisions will show which we've chosen. That's the choice we have. And we have to realize to choose this world is to choose something that's short term. In the grand scheme of things, this world is momentary. In the book of Revelation, Babylon the prostitute looked fantastic. Her wine was intoxicating. But by the end of the vision, Babylon is consumed by fire. She's gone. Dust. In the Garden of Eden, that fruit was pleasing to the eye. But when Eve ate it, everything went sour. The result was death. And here John says in verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. If you choose this world, be aware you're choosing a vapor, a mist. You're choosing something that's already in the process of disintegration. Enoch Powell once said, every politician's career ends in failure what he meant was, no matter how high you rise in politics, at some point, you start sliding back down again. At some point, you get shuffled off the cabinet, if you make it to the cabinet. Or you don't get re-elected. Or you don't get asked to give speeches anymore. Or the media doesn't ask for your comments anymore. Every politician's career ends in failure. We could add that every life ends in failure when that life is lived for this world. Because there's no future for this world. It will pass away and so will all the stuff in this world that seemed so desperately, desperately important. All that stuff that seemed more exciting and more interesting and more valuable than God. But, John says, whoever does the will of God lives forever. Everything this world offers is short-term. It's going to fade like a bouquet of flowers. It's already getting brittle around the edges. Its colors are already going dull. But God lives forever. So do his people. So do his blessings on his people. Forgiveness of sins. Fellowship with God. Victory over the evil one and all the rest of God's blessings. They're eternal. So, let's make up our minds. Some of us made up our minds years ago And maybe we need to make up our minds all over again today. Maybe our commitment to God has been fading. Maybe this world has been getting more and more significant in our lives and in our hearts. Let's realize again what we have in Christ. And let's make up our minds again Not to trade all of that for short-term substitutes. Maybe we need to spend some time this afternoon or this evening resetting our priorities. Turning away from some passing things that have been captivating us. Things we've begun to live for and chase after. Maybe we need to give our allegiance back to God and begin to delight all over again in the eternal blessings of God. Our final songs give us a chance to do.